Hey guys, this is Andrew. My guest today is Mike Noop, co-founder and head of AI at Zapier. As Mike puts it, when LLMs came into being 12 months ago, he realized they would either be the core enabler of Zapier's next 10 years of growth or be the reason they fade into irrelevance. And that realization is what drove him to take on the role of head of AI at Zapier and drive an extremely high level of urgency to experiment with use cases and form factors in all aspects of the business. And really this episode is a snapshot into the progress Mike and his team have made. They're probably the furthest along I've seen in finding truly material ROI in how they handle customer support, how they run their go-to-market motion, how they build the product, and some of the implementation challenges they've managed through along the way. And maybe even more interesting is why Mike views LLMs as the key enabler to an evolution in Zapier's UI UX paradigm, which has the potential to take the platform from the 10 million users where it is today toward 100 million users over the next decade. As always, the key takeaways from our interviews are on ctlresearch.com, but if you're here to listen to the full audio, I hope you enjoy it. Mike, such a pleasure to have you on. Yeah, thanks, Andrew. Awesome. Look, let's jump right in. I want to start by saying that I think a lot of people associate Zapier with early LLM adoption. You guys were one of the first 12 ChatGPT plugins. You have two other products you've launched in this area. You guys are huge users of LLMs internally. But I think what's incredible about this is that you started on this journey 12 months ago, like everyone else, and the speed of execution has just been incredible. So I'd love to kick it off by just hearing that chronological journey from the beginning all the way through to where you are today. Yeah, sure. I have a bit of a eclectic, odd background. My sort of formal training is in engineering, but over the last 10 years at Zapier, I'm one of the co-founders. I've basically done every role across engineering to design to management. I was a member of our exec team. I ran our build org for a few years. So throughout that whole journey, it's always been trying to focus on what are the areas of the company where no one else is focusing on right now? How can I get something kickstarted internally that otherwise didn't seem like it was likely to happen? And about a year ago, actually probably a few years ago is where my journey started with this. You know, I saw the GPT-2 release. That was cool, but just passing. GPT-3 came out, spent a lot of time with that. We did an internal presentation on GPT-3 and possibilities and use cases. I don't think it was quite useful enough that we, or at least we couldn't use our imagination good enough to figure out how to use GPT-3 for anything serious internally. But a year ago, Last summer, it was actually before all the ChatGPT stuff came out, I read the, I think it was the Chain of Thought paper that came out last January. And that was the first thing that sort of convinced me that, whoa, these large language models have some pretty large capability overhangs that have been in the model since effectively GPT-3 was released and just no one knew it. <laughs> and it's just been sitting there for 18 months. And that felt really cool, exciting, and scary at the same time. You know, what are, what can these models actually do that no one knows that they can do, particularly around more complex reasoning, right, and logic. And so that's what I spent the majority of the last 12 months working on is just trying to understand, okay, how do we, what reasoning capability exists in these models? The very first thing you run into is how do you equip them with tools? So complex tool use, that fits really well in with Zapier's sort of paradigm of we have a platform of 50,000 actions? How can we equip language models to be able to take advantage of that and be able to run actions in software that you actually care about rather than just being statelessly frozen in the model weights? And that was my intro journey. And Brian and I, my co-founder and CTO, basically spent six months, just gave up our day jobs effectively and just went all in on trying to prototype a lot of different large language model-based product experiences and trying to figure out the tech. And I think we moved the ideas pretty quick. We built a version of ChatGPT before actually ChatGPT existed and worked through that. We did a bunch of chain of thought, tree of thought explorations before that was a thing. We had a version of the tool former paper internally implemented before that was published. I think we moved very quickly just through the possibility space of what can you use these models for and eventually settled on figuring out the best thing that a fellow technology could do at so that point, end of Q4 last year, beginning of Q1, was equip 
these language models with tools, which is ultimately what led us to launching the ChatGPT plugin. Once we learned that was they were going to launch plugins, that just felt the most obvious natural way for us to participate in that sort of ecosystem was expose our platform of actions out to let language models actually to actually take advantage of them. Yeah, makes sense. We'll get into all that stuff, a lot of topics to cover, which is exciting. But as a starting point, I want to start where our relationship started, which is that I reached out because I saw you guys had posted on Twitter that I think it was the Zap Templates growth graph, which indicated that you guys were using it in a very successful way internally, up into the right hockey stick adoption curve. Do you mind just spending a minute on what that actually is? Yeah. Basically, after the ChatGPT plugin got launched, I started getting a lot of internal inbound questions from a lot of other companies, peers, friends, just asking, okay, you guys feel like you figured out some of this LM stuff. Can you help me cut through the hype, basically? <laughs> that, you know, it was mm -hmm. a huge hype wave in Q1 in March, April, May of this year. And folks really would just want to know what's real, what's, what should I pay attention to? What should I spend time in my own organization on trying to think through and adopting? And I wanted to answer that question in a more grounded way. So one of the things I started looking at was how are we actually adopting it internally at Zapier? I mean, we can publish these products out for our customers, but I felt a more sort of grounded way to answer that was let's just see what we're doing. Back in Q1, in fact, Wade, uh, CEO did this, we had this big moment internally where we called this code red basically, and we said, Look, language models are likely going to change the game for what automation means. And we want to have any hope of being able to serve our customers. We have to figure it out for ourselves. And that culminated, but through a bunch of internal enablement of which tools are okay to use, how can we use them, training folks on using language models. Brian and I just spent six months basically just high fidelity learning what you can do and can't do with these models. So we had to teach everyone else. And that yeah. culminated in this one week hackathon we held where we actually basically gave everyone a week to say, hey, go figure out how to use language models for your job. And this is a long-term game. In 10 years, this is going to be one of those assumed skill sets, I think, where knowledge workers, or at least the best knowledge workers, know how to use this technology. So here's a week to go figure it out for yourself. This will benefit you at Zapier, and we hope well into the future. And so I did a bit of a research investigation in the last two months trying to figure out, all right, what came of that? And this graph I saw basically looked like an S-curve. <laughs> we got really fast adoption. And then it tailed off at about a third of Zapier employees are using language models internally for internal operational workflows, which I think is more than I am aware of anyone else I've talked to. In like, and I have very high degree of confidence in that measurement because we're actually looking at usage of our own Zapier platform to say, all right, how many employees are using Zaps that have language model step in the middle of it somewhere? So I, I have very high conviction that that's actually a real adoption rate internally. And I think the two interesting observations are one, wow, it massively got to a third. That's more than anything else I've seen launched internally. And the second one is it does have a tail off at around a third. And it's kind of interesting to ask questions of what would it take to get to 50%, 60%, 70%, and so on. But that curve was what really got me excited to go try to investigate some of these actual use cases across marketing, product sales, and so on that we can talk about. Yeah, love it. And do you mind spending just a minute on what exactly that graph showed? Just what is that template is, why that matters to you, how you use the LLMs in building those? Yeah, so one of the first places that when I saw that overall employee adoption curve of language models, started looking at use cases. And the first one that popped out was this use case that was in our marketing partnership organization. Zapier, we have Zaps. These are workflow automations that people build. It's a combination of a trigger and multiple actions typically that do something automatically for a user across the various software tools they're using. We have this concept of Zap template, which is something that's built by humans today, or at least historically. <laughs> and these Zap templates are basically the kind of outlines of Zaps. They describe which apps are involved in it, which ones are the triggers, which ones are the actions. And they frequently have a sort of more of a use case attached to it as well. You can describe Zaps on Zapier in very functional. You could say something like, whenever I get a new lead, someone who fills out my form in Google Forms, automatically create a contact in HubSpot. 
And that's a very functional way to describe what this app does, but not very inspiring. If you just came across that on our website or your friend was telling you about what they use Zapier for, you'd probably ask, why is that useful for me? What does that actually help me with? Mm -hmm. And you can reframe that exact sort of functional use case in a lot of more value-oriented ways, inspiring-oriented ways. I could talk about the use cases saying, hey, why don't you set up an automation to pump every single new lead you get into HubSpot so that you don't have to have, you have zero overhead for all your reps in order to load sales lead data into HubSpot. And now it's kind of like, okay, now I start to get why that's useful for me. It's okay, I'm decreasing my overhead, my costs of having my sales reps have to actually do manual data entry or copy and paste this data all day long or have to hire sales ops folks to do this sort of stuff. Um, and so those use cases are manually written today, basically. We're going into our user base and actually interviewing people and turning those into little short descriptions of what all these apps do. And so we publish Zap templates. We have a few million on the website. These are very top of funnel for us where these get indexed by Google for a search. These are how a lot of users discover Zapier in the first place. They're how a lot of users activate, they get started with Zapier, they find a Zap and they turn it on based on this one use case. So there is a, we try to create new Zap templates for all the new apps that are being launched. Today, Zapier launches about two integrations a day. So we have this problem. <laughs> it's a combinatorial problem because every new app that gets launched Zapier is a graph, right? Where all the apps yeah. are the nodes of this graph. And every new app that gets launched adds N squared new edges to that graph. And we ideally would have a Zap template for all of those edges of that graph. And that is a really big problem because it explodes over time as you get more and more apps. So we literally had a hole of about a few million Zap templates that we knew we should have, but had not been built because of just how laborious it is to get the exact Zap template outline correct. And then use your creative thinking on how do I write the use case for it, the description of it. Mm -hmm. And this is something where the, one of the first use cases where we started applying language models internally was, this is actually a kind of a hidden feature of Zapier that a lot of folks don't know about, but anyone can do is you can actually expose internal APIs to Zapier through our developer platform. So you can, if you have internal apps and tools you built, you can expose those for non-technical users to do, take actions on. So Brian exposed mm -hmm. our Django backend, which is where all of our app templates are just held in a database and a lot of action to be able to create a new one. And we had some non-technical folks on our partnerships team who then built a series of zaps that when new apps would get launched, would automatically use a language model step to generate content ideas of what these use cases were and automatically generate the JSON structure of these app templates. And we went from building and having a human build maybe 10 a day to now we've got a human reviewing a thousand a day where these are just put in a spreadsheet. And one of the most stark, I think, rate of changes I've seen around the company around how many use cases we can actually publish now. It's over 100x the rate that we were doing previously, where that's entirely enabled by the fact that language models are really good at that problem of taking unstructured use case idea and creating structured JSON and also the creative part of coming up with use cases that folks might enjoy. So that's probably one of the most impressive, I think, use cases I've seen so far internally. It's such a logical one too. If you think about the capabilities of LLMs and yep, that's exactly where they should be positioned. One of the things I've, I've thought a bit about in this context is when you use the Zapier ChatGPT plugin, you're effectively describing a workflow that you want. It'll create it for you and then you can go run that workflow. And part of that workflow building is this issue of effectively tool discovery. And I almost wonder to what degree bots or agents being the action takers will change the game of SEO. Have you guys thought about that at all? Have you, is there a reason to start optimizing applications to actually be better for bots to consume? We've thought about this a lot because we do get a lot of our user acquisition through search. I think one of the interesting things is it feels like companies that historically have, who are at the, let's say, heavily weighed in the index of the search engines as of fall 2022, 
tended to get also high representation in these language models because they tended to be large scrapes of the internet. So they already have high indexing inside these language models. Now that'll change and evolve over time, but it's an interesting historical artifact of language models tend to bias towards things that have a lot of content on the internet. Because it's a token predictor. One thing we did do, a little internal project, which I thought was fun, was we started to try to get a sense of tracking some of these language models, how they recommend products and apps over time. So you can go to the, you can take a prompt, say something like, hey, I'm a marketer. I'm trying to buy a CRM and here's five facts about me and my company. And give me the top three recommendations for what CRM I should use. And you can mm -hmm. just plug that in every week into GPT-4, into GPT-3.5, into Claude, and just track how those recommendations change over time. And like, yeah. all right, are they growing? Are they shrinking? I don't know what we're going to do with that yet. It's just an interesting thing. We wanted to get a sense of how our language models thinking about recommendations and that there's a big story back earlier this year. Hey, language models take over search. And I don't know that we're seeing that yet, but that was one thing we started playing around with internally to get a start getting a sense of how exactly do language models adjust that landscape and are there ways to influence it or not? It's kind of hard to tell you. And I think everyone's probably building their different approaches today. Yeah. Yeah, it makes it it's super interesting you guys to look into that. I could imagine that it's beneficial to think about from the perspective of choosing and finding Zapier, but also within Zapier, you can imagine there's a lot of work to be done on how do vendors optimize around making sure their app is the chosen action for a given stated intent. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, I do think this is going to happen. I think you're going to get wedged out of the middle, basically. <laughs> Over a long yeah. enough time period, it, does, it feels like SaaS is going to bifurcate into do you own user experience or are you a capability provider? And today there's a lot of SaaS companies that sort of play in the middle ground a lot more where they're owning the user experience, but not totally, but they do have some really interesting, unique capability, or maybe they started out as a unique capability and they're trying to expand into owning the user experience. Just feels language models add a lot of pressure to the middle to force folks to pick a lane and push you into one of those two spots. Are you going to end up being a unique capability provider for one of these language model-based systems? Or are you going to be one of the front ends where folks are actually discovering and using their own agents? I don't think there's an obvious answer quite either yet on which path is better or which one will win. But I have observed that even happening a little bit internally as we think about how do we equip language models with tools? Yeah, it's super interesting to think about it. Relates to the next internal use case I wanted to ask you about, which is handling support tickets, prepping some of the information before CSNs or agents deal with them. Maybe just talk a bit about that for a second, what you guys have done there. And then I wanted to ask a higher level question on what you just said. Sure. I think the, so we have internal use cases across every department, product, marketing, sales support, you name it. Basically, we've found some really useful stuff. I would say it, it is a long tail though, internally, if I was trying to bucket those use cases out for how all those folks use it. And. I think if I was generically describing the head of the sort of fat head of the tail, it is use cases where we are using language models, where we get a high volume of customer data and information coming into Zapier. So think about sales, gone call transcriptions or Zendesk support tickets coming in or Typeform that has a product management running a survey for a feature that we have, or maybe an end product survey that we're running. All of these places give you really high volume of just unstructured data to maybe do interesting things with. And the thing we found is that language models are really good at is doing this feature extraction out of that stream of data at a pretty high rate of reliability and high degree of quality in order to provide, basically, I think our main use because are providing summaries or identifying issues, especially over a long time horizon. So we have one in our support organization where we have an LM set up where we're basically doing bug triage using language models today where we have a language model reviewing all of our issues, Zendesk issues and tickets coming in to raise visibility on what are the top five issues affecting customers this week. 
And you can also ask it over time period. You could say, all right, we'll look at over a month, look at it over a quarter. And then we have a, another language model doing categorization where we actually have a list of all of our internal product teams and areas and what products and areas of the product they own. And we try to figure out and map, okay, based on this particular issue, which product team is the most likely one that owns that area. And then that team gets its own slice of the data view where it's okay. Then they get their own individualized report of, okay, over the last week, here's the most important issues that are hitting our inbox, support inbox that are related to your area of the product. All things that we were doing partially before we had language models, it was just side of desk work, or it might've been one person had all of this kind of context in their head and they're only one person. So can they really go around the org and tell everybody what the problems are? <laughs> and, that, but yeah, I think that's probably one of these coolest, most generic use cases, this extraction over raw data. And so it's a great lead into sort of what I wanted to circle back to, which is this question around, can you just say again, by the way, I liked your framework, it was capabilities. And what was the other thing? You're going to get divided into one of two categories. Yeah, exactly. It's either owning the front end user experience right. or your capability provider. <laughs> that right, right. is going to get pulled into these language models that are powering some of these front end experiences. Okay, so great. So that's what I wanted to, I think it's a great framework. And I wanted to use that as a way to talk about this support ticket use case thing, because you, you hear from the guys at Intercom and Zendesk, and of course they want to be the ones to go build what you guys have built. So I guess my question is, do you view this internal automation you have around summarization, support tickets, customer insights as something that will be subsumed into those other platforms? Or is this something that for some reason you think exi needs to exist as an independent capability? I would be shocked if most of these platforms don't eventually add these features in. <laughs> They're just so right. good. I have to imagine that everyone's going to be looking for, okay, we're working language models add value into our sort of software platforms. And this kind of gets into the territory of what is Zapier's reason for existence, I guess, if you want to think about it like that. And at the end of the day, I think there's users want a lot of choice. There's a explosion of internal software that they want to be able to pick and choose from which tools they use. And businesses tend to want that software to be customized to their needs. And when you are buying a piece of software off the shelf, you know, this, that software maker, that sort of vendor has to serve thousands, hundreds of thousands of users and buyers. And so they have to make the lowest common denominator decision of where they spend their engineering time. All right, what is the feature that's going to satisfy the most amount of our users for the least amount of investment that we can make? Because that's how they're going to think about it. And that experience is always going to have rough edges around it, right? It's not going to satisfy the nth need from a user standpoint. It's not mm -hmm. going to satisfy every single user to 100% of what they care about. It's not going to integrate with every single tool that they care about. It's just unpractical for software vendors to satisfy user demands to the 100th percentile and every, for every single user. It's just implausible. And that's where Zapier, I think, plays a really important role in that is offering customers and our users choice, the ability to more narrowly get their use cases well represented in software and for them to be able to build without having to allocate engineers to it. It breaks the model of a vendor having to think about how do I have engineers built to 100%. We can actually let on technical users in your own business, highly tailor and customize all of the sort of constellation of software and tools you use with Zapier to exactly what you care about from a business standpoint. That's a broad way I think about that, where Zapier fits yeah, in. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's super interesting. And you turned to my next question, which is how you thought about the vision for Zapier in this new world. And there are so many different ways to think about it. The, the, the two that come to mind are, on one hand, it's using LLMs to build workflows more easily. On the other, it's Zapier has this amazing library of integrations. It could be the interface by which AI agents or other pieces of software take action in others, if you will. And it's a lot of sort of interconnectivity here, but how would you articulate that long-term vision for the role that Zapier should and maybe shouldn't play in this new world? I don't think our long-term goals have changed much. How we achieve yeah. them, I think has definitely changed. Actually, when we originally started the company, I don't think we had a 
super grand long-term vision, frankly. I think we wanted to build, APIs were really cool. We wanted to build something that allowed non-technical folks to connect them. And we want to build a cool product and be self-sustaining. And uh, along the way, I actually thought Zapier was a very, the first several years of its company, for the of life of the company, I thought Zapier was a boring productivity tool. And I wasn't a personal user of Zapier. I didn't have a use case for Zapier for several years into the sort of company. <laughs> and it was around 2014, 2015, when we just started having more and more users come up to us and just showing a high degree of passion for the product I'll describe that I didn't expect. It was, it didn't match my mental model. Like, hey, this is a B2B software. What's going on? Why are you so excited about this thing? And you dig into it. Automation and Zapier get described oftentimes in this format of time-saving, which is totally accurate. It saves time. That is definitely something automation does. However, when you ask these users, why are you so passionate? They don't think about it in that world or that way. They think about things like Zapier more from a zero to one basis where it's like, hey, I couldn't have done this otherwise. I didn't have budget to go hire an engineer. I'm not technical myself. I had no alternative. Zapier literally let me run my business or run this part of my business in a way that I otherwise probably just wouldn't have been doing. And I think that's where you see a lot of this passion and fanaticism show up. It's on that side where it's giving a broader set of the world a tool that they can actually use now. And that's very exciting to the really tools that give them a lot of individual leverage. So I think after we started seeing that, our, I think our visions grew and our ambitions grew alongside our users as they grew and told us how much it mattered to them. And it was, oh, okay, how can we get more people that, that feeling? That's a really powerful sort of feeling. And that's our long-term kind of goal is, all right, can we give 100 million people plus world in the world that same feeling? I think the, the reality is if I look at our progress over the last 10 years, I think we have made progress. We've reached 10 million users on the current paradigm of how Zapier wraps UX around essentially writing code under the hood. However, if I look at our long-term growth, I do think that that paradigm is hitting diminishing returns. I just don't know that we can get from 10 to 100 million users on just the classic paradigm of a canvas builder. It's just too hard, I still think, in order to get to 100 million plus folks. And language models are one of the first technologies I've seen that I think offers an escape hatch to actually letting non-technical line of business users be able to actually write and deploy custom software for their own problems, whatever those sort of problems might end up being. And so that's how I tend to think about the technology and where our long-term direction is lined is it's still pointed in the same direction, but I think we actually have a brand new capability and tool now to, it's going to boost our chances of actually succeeding against it. But I will say this, any forecast about Zapier's business as of 12 months ago, I don't believe anymore. <laughs> we're either going to accelerate and hit escape velocity, or we're going to just decay into irrelevance because other folks are going to learn this stuff, catch up and deploy other paradigms. And obviously I'd like it to be the former. So we're going to try really hard at that, but I think it is a, it is still, still got to put in the work. I think you guys are in an amazing place right now. I'm biased for the former outcome and I'm sure you guys will get there. But the way that I think about it, if you think about the decaying curve, software is the first part of the curve where you have very high frequency use cases. Zapier before was the next part of the curve, which is these less frequent things that didn't really make sense to embed in software. But where Zapier ended before pre the world of LLMs was this point where there was too much activation energy required for whatever reason for a given workflow to be accomplished. And I think there are two components to that. No, one of which is discovery, which is I've always wanted to use Zapier, but you, I never found that thing that I could use it for. And so I'm hoping that you guys can have an LLM that can help me accomplish that, discover that the problems that can be solved. And the second thing is there is to some degree, some coding required to actually design the workflow and make it work functionally. And so I'm curious if you agree with that vision and framework for thinking about it, which of those two things are you guys more focused on right now, which is easier to solve, which is already solved? How do you think about those two problems? Yeah. One minor correction in a second. I, for most workflows, most folks don't write code, but these are non-technical builders. We'll agree though, that folks generally are the most successful in Zapier have a builder mindset. They are folks who 
know how to use software at a high degree of proficiency, right? right? They are builders with software as opposed to necessarily coders. We've surveyed our user base actually a lot. Only 20% of our users would self-identify as an engineer or developer in some way. You have to have a mindset of how do I plug these systems together, which I think is where Zapier is too hard, frankly. I think that's why there aren't hundred million people in the world who think like that today. So we're either going to have to phase them into that, or we're going to have to make it easier enough so that they don't have to. But I think you're actually broadly have broken down Zapier's funnel in the right way, which is, do you have a use case or, or and that's where you fall off because I couldn't identify use case or is it, I know what I want to do and I'm having trouble translating it into the format that Zapier needs me to in order to actually run it. It depends where you come in on our funnel, basically. I would say the majority of customers today who come into Zapier have a good understanding of what the problems are. They are not coming in blindly. They usually are coming in with a sort of business problem or at least a problem in their head that they would Zapier to try to solve. And the challenging part is how do I convert that squishy problem I have in my head into software. And this is what engineers do also too. Hey, they get a business problem. They got to try to translate their head into what, what is the format of the software, it's the architecture of that software, sexual lines of code that I need to write in order to solve that problem. Um, it's a hard problem to do. It takes a lot of training to get good at that. And that's part of our challenge of how do we get people to think that way. But that's something language model is really good is turning this squishy idea space into structure. <laughs> so that's, I'd say that's just, that was the first place we went after was, okay, can we use language models to help translate squishy user ideas into structure and the in fact the ChatGPT plugin that we launched back in Q1 has a prototype of this uh, built out. So the plugin does two things basically. One, it lets you run any action on Zapier's platform. So if you want to create a contact, send a Slack message, create a spreadsheet or so say search your inbox or search for a specific ticket hub in Zendesk or grab a certain contact out of HubSpot, you can use natural language to run those actions. The second thing it does is it will help you think of workflows and use cases. So you can have a sort of natural language conversation with a, with ChatGPT to say, Hey, I'm an X, I do Y, I use Z tools. Can you help me think of workflows? And how can I, how could this help me accomplish my maybe departmental goals or something like that? And it'll come back with usually a pretty good list of use cases and a link to a zap that kickstarts you down deeper into, into the sort of setup funnel to, to get that way. So we've generally focused there first, just because it felt like it's going to fit the technology really well on that unstructured to structured. Now I say that, but I actually don't think that is, is sufficient to get to hundred million users. I, I think to do that, we do have to then to enter the territory of how do we help people uncover and discover inspiring, useful ways to use automation for themselves, whether on their day jobs or their personal lives or whatever. I just don't think we get to hundred million if you just relying on the organic background discovery that sort of happens. Yeah. So I, I think that is an important problem to solve. I do think language models offer, they're actually pretty good at it too. We, we have some prototypes of that in our funnel today where we have a zap guesser where you can come in and describe who you are, basically not your problems, but just describe your job and we can make educated guesses and recommendations on use cases. But I'd say those are, that's much earlier days. And I don't think we have as many proof points of being able to yeah, reach out into the world and help people discover this automation mindset from zero quite yet. Higher intent users convert better. I actually think it's probably about trying to capture users at wherever we have the motivation to take the next action is usually how I think about conversion. So for somebody coming into a search landing page for us has very high intent. So that traffic's 2x is likely to, to sign up, 2x is likely to activate. 
TX is likely to convert. So that's good traffic. Then we get homepage traffic, which is brand traffic. Hey, your coworker said Zapier is this cool thing. You should go check it out. All right, gonna go kick the tires and just see what it is. I don't really understand what it can do for me. That traffic converts a lot lower, but there was still a moment of activation for them where they were curious enough. And that's the goal, I think, like where users are getting exposed to Zapier latently. How do we take advantage of that small amount of energy and intent they have and drag down the activation bar to, I think, use these words to be able to get to the next step. Just like, okay, I, got, I went from latent interest to, ooh, okay, that caught my attention. I want to go check that thing out more and move down the funnel to the sort of next spot. Let me answer this through the frame of how I usually advise teams to work through the problem space. And I think they'll look at some of the problems. So generally at the very starting spot, what should I try to use language models for? I generally advise folks, even external folks, the place you want to do is go look at your problem list that you gave up on. What are the problems from the last 10 years that you've been trying to solve? And you could not solve with, because of either it was too expensive. I had to hire manual contractors to do this thing or the problem perplexity was too great. So I just couldn't get a handle on it. Couldn't get traction. I could only make. 5%, 10% progress against it, and you gave up. Th those are actually some of the first ones I recommend going back to look at and reevaluate. Uh, can language models actually address some of those problems? So an example of one for us is error messages, where due to Zapier's scale we get and complexity, we get just tons of random error messages from all these different services that hit the, that some engineer at one of these vendors just wrote and never thought that a line of business user would ever see at the light of day. <laughs> so they're very esoterically written error messages. The raw error messages, they're meant for developers, not for non-technical employees to read. And yet just due to the nature of the software, they get exposed directly to people that have no idea what these messages mean. So we've known that's been a problem since 2012. It has been one of our biggest areas of support is basically explaining and <laughs> triaging error messages. And so yeah. we, we did some early explorations in the early days where we tried to get a handle on that manually, where we tried to classify, do heuristics, write alternative error messages to, that were more friendly. And the perplexity of the space was just too high. We couldn't, we really couldn't get a track on the problems so we gave up on it. That's one where we're coming back around and saying, okay, now language models can deal with that problem in a much more graceful way. And not even just being able to classify the messages, but can we, can they offer generative resolution steps? Here's the three things you should do to try to fix this. One of the most common layers on Zapier is missing required field. Hey, there's a, creating a contact in HubSpot requires a phone number. And the app that you try to map over to that didn't send a phone number. Immediate error message. And that's a really confusing thing to actually understand at Grok as a user, if you're not thinking about the data mapping. And that's a spot where, oh, language models can capture the 10,000 different ways that error message gets rendered and shown and thrown and re resolve it down into three very simple steps to fix. And even offer yeah. one clicks or resolution style stuff. So that's probably how I think about the problems. Go think about problems that you haven't had yet. Now, once you have it, yeah. the place yeah. you want to start is with the most capable model. Start with GPT-4. That's honestly today, I still think the most capable model. Don't worry about optimization. Don't worry about latency. Don't worry about cost. You just want to know, can the most capable model today solve your problem? Because if it can't, fine tuning, more novel architecture, it's not going to solve your problem, at least not easily. You're more into the realm of a fundamental model R&D then in that case. And that's generally, I think but for, for most folks, that's not what they're after. So you want to use the most capable model to start with and get sort of proofs of prototypes of concept that the most capable model can solve your problem in some way. And if it can, narrowly solve the problem that you care about in some way, then you can start worrying about, okay, how expensive is it? And what's the latency to generate all those tokens? 
what's the cost right around doing those types mm -hmm. of things and th that's where you have you can actually apply more engineering principles with using things the cheaper models to narrow in you can use evals with fine tunes to drive performance up those are the techniques we generally have started to do there i think the hallucination problem is probably the one that I think we've had the least amount of, we have the least engineering principles around how to address. Generally, the way that I think we've solved that internally is if the particular use case where you care about it is you don't want that creative generation and you want it more constrained, but you're not able to get the model to constrain it in a big way. Generally, the ripcord is you need to keep a human to look for that use case somewhere. So for an example for that, for us was actually generating Zap templates that we mentioned earlier in this call. We did not yeah. have high enough degree of confidence in generation of use case to just let that automatically create landing pages on our website that we put a human review in the loop still at the end of that to review and look and read all the use cases coming out to gut check them and make sure that they made sense still. Um, the actual structural generation part of that problem actually can be more deterministically solved because we can use code to deterministically evaluate whether the generated JSON is good or not. We can actually know, yeah. is this valid JSON or not? We can also say, hey, is this JSON rep show, does this app that it just rendered show up anywhere in our, in our database? And if the answer to those things is no, it's like, I just reject that one and don't even put it for review. So you, there yeah. are techniques you can use more deterministic methods to just do a first call. But at the end of the day, for a lot of the use case gen stuff, we still will have a human in the loop saying, okay, well, let's make sure all these sort of make sense for the sort of most high risk stuff. And that's a pretty general pattern I still see today where you yeah. can get high enough confidence. There are some autonomous systems you can deploy here, but for a lot of hallucination issues, we still have kind of human in the loop. I think that leads us up to the kind of the end of that story. But yeah, generally yeah. we're in the territory today with quite a few of our products where we are starting to deploy fine tunes. I think three and a half and four start finally starting to get fine tuning capabilities going. Historically, kind of had to use open source models if you want to do a lot of that stuff. So I think that's going to come. I think you will probably see a lot of companies adopting fine tuning in order to drive down latency, time the token, and cost per token. Before we get to the fine tuning, I just had one thought. I think one of the beauties of Code Interpreter, if you've used that product yet, has been. I have. Yeah, it, it is work. amazing. Yeah, it's pretty cool. But I think what's interesting is that one of the things that's amazing about it is that you can say, here's my problem. It will screw it up for one reason or another. Look at why it failed and then go edit it itself. And as you said, hey, we want to validate the JSON structure. You can also validate things that aren't as syntactically structured and do that automatically at a recurring loop. Have you guys looked at doing that at all in the workflows yet? I imagine that's a great way. You could even say, hey, we want to get an API response. If it fails with that phone number missing, pull that from somewhere else. Have you guys worked on that at all yet? We do have a few spots of workflow generation where we are trying to get a model to self-recurse basically and self-improve effectively with yeah. the output from another model. The places where you generally want to use techniques that today are places that can be run offline because you're the, just the latency and cost is so expensive to do inline model looping today. Generally, you're not going to want to put that in front of a synchronous user experience. So you think about chat-based conversation, right? If you're going to have to do a really complex tree of thought where you're going to have to have a model generate maybe 10, 20 different completions in order to figure out which chain you're going to take to give the user a path to a solution, it's just generally too expensive to do synchronously. And expensive in the sense that the user's not going to tolerate waiting 60 seconds <laughs> in a lot of cases for sort of an output. Just the speed is, just sucks. So I think we've looked at more use cases where can you deploy those types of techniques offline to generate a data corpus that then can get deployed. And not to beat the use case or example of the head, but the Zap template one is an example of that where we actually have pr a pretty complex set of language model steps that co cascade while we're doing those use case generations. It's not just a single model call. We're just pumping out a list of things and we snip it. That's actually doing three, four different calls and doing evals and going back if they're bad and trying to generate more. But it's okay if it happens offline because it's, it's more almost an ETL data mindset where it's feeding into a spreadsheet that a human then 
is going like, okay cool now my job's done now i can go do my review and once i click the button now all those go on the website and it's done Ge generally for the more expensive slow deeper logic needs i that's where we've been pushing most of the use cases towards is these makes sense. offline jobs makes sense to go back to what you were talking about on the mini models or the fine-tune models have you guys found any tooling that you've enjoyed using that makes your life easier when doing that and not even just on fine-tuning maybe it's just quality yep. management or anything that helps this sort of product development workflow? Yes. Let me answer maybe the broadly and then we can touch on the fine tuning. Everyone basically is first product that they ship with a language model is shipped on vibes. Your engineer is kind of like building your prompts. You've got your sort of black box assistant. You're testing out with just some use cases you have in your head with natural language. You're like, okay, this feels pretty cool. Let's throw the beta out in the world and see what happens. Here's what happens immediately next. And I think that's fine to do, by the way. But here's what immediately you learn next is, okay, you get some user feedback. The user trying to do this thing and they entered this query and it didn't give them what they want. So your engineer goes back to their code and they're like, okay, how do I adjust my prompt or how do I write deterministic code to catch that scenario and do something better? And okay, they've got their pull request. They're ready to go push it live. And they're like, wait, if I make this change, how do I know that all the other use cases that people typed in are, are still going to work? I have no way of knowing what permutations of this black box system, how they affect existing users who are successful. So you immediately get to the realization, oh, I need an eval. I need a, and not just a test suite, which is how most engineers would historically think. Oh, I need a deterministic code suite that can run locally to give me a sense of, are all my tests passing? You're just not going to get that with language models because for products that use natural language, there are lots of right answers, potentially. There's a spectrum of rightness. There are certain answers for a natural language input that are the gold star, A+. Plus. If I can, you do this every time, you're great. There's the, oh my God, never say X <laughs> type of responses that are, you really want to avoid. They're just like, either they're 180 degree bad or they're toxic or whatever. You don't want them to happen. Then there's a lot of stuff in the middle though. You have these acceptable answers to a natural language query that might be okay. They're not the best answer in the world, but at least it's not bad. So it's okay. So you need a grading spectrum where you can actually look at your model output and grade it and say, okay, this is good, great, bad, and give it ranges there. And then you need a system that can go back and backtest that against all your historical inputs. So you, and you, in order to get good backtesting, so you need to collect that data in the first place, then you need to have it scored either by having humans internally do your company or hiring contractors to manually give those scores. Or what I think most companies do first is they usually reach for getting user feedback. You put thumbs up, thumbs down with a text box area is usually the first thing I'd rec recommend natural language products incorporate. That gives you typically enough signal to start building the basic eval so you can have a system then a test suite essentially that your engineers can run when they're deploying new change to get a sense of, okay, is my, is the score that I care about the percentage of right answers going up or is at least, is it being held the same? So I know that if I fix this one problem, I'm not decaying the performance of the rest of the system, or is it actually going down? I shouldn't make that change. We have been, we actually built that system ourselves. There's a bunch of cool companies now working on this. One that we've adopted and used internally is this company called Brain Trust. There's a handful of them, though, but generally that's what these say, software tools do is they allow you to load in a bunch of human labeled evaluation data on your natural language executions and allow you to measure your performance over time. So you'll definitely need certain eval whenever you're building these natural language systems. And that extends into the fine tuning, wrap that all the way back up. You need that type of system too, when you're doing fine tuning, but when you're doing fine tuning, often you're not, you're not usually reaching for fine tuning to drive accuracy. There's one other thing I think we've learned. You shouldn't reach for fine tunes if you're thinking, oh, I've got a I've got a system that's 50% right, and I want to get it to 80% right or 90% right. Fine tuning is generally not going to solve that problem for you. What fine tuning will do is increase the determinism of how likely it is to spit out that 50%, right? So if your variability is very high, you can knock that down into a deeper predictable log property and 
It's going to drive down latency as well. So it can spit out tokens faster or just generally give you less tokens because you can say, hey, instead of generating all this wrapper content in order to, for your prompt, you can just, you code that in the fine tune directly. So you don't have to load up the same amount of tokens every time or get the same amount of tokens spit out from the language model every single time. And that, that improves latency and performance. And then that also drives down cost. So generally we've reached for you. We've been reaching for fine tunes more in the cases where we want slightly more predictability, decrease latency, decrease cost. Not for great model accuracy. Yep. Great perspectives. Really interesting. I'm curious on the evals, what is the data or what are the questions or, or prompts you're sending to the model to use in the eval set? Cause I imagine, and also how do you do the evaluations in retrospect? You could do some basically tech similarity thing to understand how similar the outputs are. <laughs> but even yes. in that case, if you're generating JSON, one character different matters for you guys, particularly when you're doing function calling. So how do you think about all those problems. The harder one, you actually got a hundred percent, I think the first thing you said is the biggest problem that you typically encounter, which is how do you do similarity differencing? Because you, the model is not going to, even for the same prompt input, you're not going to get the exact same prompt output. Right. So you do have exactly. to do a similarity score against model output with your sort of acceptable ranges for that stuff. The place that we started with this, which is probably this, I think best practice and still broadly what we're doing by what most of our stuff is looking at is doing either embedding based similarity differencing, you can take the cosine yeah. difference of the model output with other model output that we've got, or you can do more complex clustering style th stuff with K-beans to get a sense of, okay, plot all of your outputs on the giant flattened 2D map, and you've got labeled good, bad scores for all of your sort of inputs and outputs that you do have labeled. And you try to use some clustering bases to draw boundaries around similar outputs there that, and then you make the assumption that, okay, those clusters we're going to say are equivalent to the labeled data set that we have in our sort of yeah. labeled data set there. I think that's still best practice. I haven't heard of anyone who's done it better or differently than that. There's thing with clustering is there's a billion different statistical techniques you can use for clustering. So you can get into the deep rat hole of, all right, which one's the best one and this is where it's actually useful as on staff to on you know, what dimension are you dimensionality reducing to a space where you can effectively cluster it and on what basis. And yeah. yeah it, but um, yeah, so, uh, you can nail it around the first problem. Your intuition is right. The main problem we encounter with that is the fact that like, there's no way to do an equivalent score against just a string. You typically need to do a semantic similarity search or differencing on it in order to say, Hey, is this a good or bad output that we just got from the model? It gets harder by the way, the longer they are. I think that's one of their insight. So you generally want to break down your output and problem into smaller things that you can get evals around which in, does influence how you think about collecting data on the user side too. If you are getting a human, let's say your model, let's take the chatbot example, right? A, tech, a message in, bot's gonna generate perhaps paragraphs of content out. It is a lot. If you just get a very crude thumbs up, thumbs down feedback signal from that paragraphs of text, it's gonna be really hard to get a sense of, okay, is that getting better or worse in an algorithmic way over time? Because there's just, it's very different. There's too many ideas that are encoded in the output, essentially. There's too many, there's too many features and facets of the content that's embedded in the output to get a good score. So if you can break down the feedback into smaller parts in some way, that often is a good signal that you can do. So for our natural language API, where we map in a natural language statement to actions, we, in that case, we're getting usually a single one sentence in, and our output is a, a single action on our platform with certain fields that are mapped to it. So the space of what you're actually grading is a lot much, is much more narrow that you're getting yeah. this feedback on. So it's easier to build that into a system. That was what we're going to listen to next. The benefit you guys have is that you could effectively build a grammar for every single action that could be executed on Zapier or could be generated by the model that could eventually be used. And you've seen some approaches of people saying, hey, we're going to graft on something to transform a model of fucking face to say, hey, you're only going to be able to generate 
syntactically JSON's correct outputs within the scope of the prompt that was given. Have you guys worked into using those things? I imagine they'd be pretty effective. There was one that got published three weeks ago that I yeah. want to go explore and try using. We haven't adopted it yet, but yeah. it was actually working at the AST level. Just, it was apply regex yeah. to the language model output at the model layer to verify, give you high degrees of guarantees that you're only going to get structurally correct data out of the system. Um, frankly, the way to think about it still is it's a latency reducing type of thing, not a capability reducing thing, because you can get the models to generate correct JSON. It's just if it's wrong, you gotta throw it away and try again. So mm-hmm. again, this goes back to what I was saying before. You can prototype it very easily, and I would recommend not going to the, to the extent that having to go adopt that system is going to add days to weeks in your early prototyping iteration cycles. You should probably not worry about it. Just use the off the shelf stuff to get a sense of capability. And then once you like, okay, we know that the model can do this. We know this is an important problem for users to solve for a business. Now you're off to look at how do we drive up all those sort of secondary factors. But yeah, it's, it is more of a like latency cost reducing thing rather than a capability thing in most cases. The models are good enough. Maybe the one spot where that might not be true is local small models and local models. I think that's probably a frontier that we haven't really explored much that I just am peripherally aware of where that actually does matter. We ha- I've done a little bit of exploration with the llama models and stuff to, just locally to get a sense of how good could they be at tool use. And the 7B models, the 15B models are not quite good enough out of the box with the, I don't think they've actually RLH up on them at all, but out of the box, they're not quite good enough to do J- structured correct JSON most of the time, 90% of the time. That, that, that's probably an area where techniques like that actually are meaningfully important where you have constraints on model size or performance. I would also imagine that like, maybe I'm wrong, but historically you guys were more latency flexible in the use cases you had because it was someone sends up and then you create the, you have a lead coming in on a form and it gets out of the hotspot. And if it's 10 minutes versus 15 minutes, not a big deal. But now if you have a bunch of people interacting through AI agents, suddenly, and I find myself doing this, if I want to add a note to Salesforce, I don't have a lot of time patience on that. And so therefore you might not have the ability to multitask a given route. I don't know if you agree with that. I think your intuition is right. There, there's this funny observation we had a while ago that Zapier's reliability perception is more influenced by the uptime of our front end website than the back end runner. And I, in that sense, if the website is down or having errors, folks get, I think, properly concerned. Hey, are my workflows still running? Are the zaps still going? I need you guys to run this as business critical for me. When we have very different approaches for reliability, or historically we've had very different approaches for reliability and uptime and SLAs around those two systems. We have a much higher standard on data loss and Zap execution than we have for front-end website. But that's not how users think about it. There's a user psychology thing you have to take into play. And I think that's true for a lot of these language models is it pushes you more into what feels right to users. I think one of the first things we learned, I think a lot of people learned at this point, but one of the first things we learned when we started playing with LMs last fall was how much it matters to get time to first visual impact down. So you really don't want to go push product experiences where you are doing a backend synchronous LLM generation with no streaming, basically, back to the user of, pro- of partial progress. Getting that partial progress back to the user is a really important part of the psychology for letting, for the user to basically give the system some time to think. And I still don't think we've nailed the pr- right paradigm. Most LLM products don't quite nail the right UX here, where they show you, and even some of our stuff still does this too, where it shows you partial JSON streaming back <laughs> in while it's still thinking. I think that's a really suboptimal way to do that. I think you want to, ChatGPT, I think does, their current interpreter does a really smart way where they box it into a small area where it's hidden by default. And that's where they do their sub-generation before they'll just run the code. But yeah, give, giving user progressive enhancement, I think is a pretty important thing we learned around the psychology of building good, good experience. But ultimately speed, 
matters. So ultimately, you're right. Speed does matter a lot for these systems. And I think that's going to be more of a differentiator than not over time. Already, code interpreter, there's a few other startups that are doing some code interpreter style things. And I keep going back, code interpreter gets faster. Like by yeah. a, maybe an order of magnitude even, where they clearly, I don't have, I don't know, I don't have insight into all the details of how they did that, but it's clearly using a tuned model in some way. It, it's not just letting, it's not doing an off the shelf chain of thought or reasoning and action style loop there. They're generating code, comments from code on one shot and very quickly on three and a half turbo performance. Whereas a lot of other folks are more constrained, at least they're generating longer chains of thought, longer generations before the actual code. And yeah, speed does matter. Yeah, yeah, it does. Mike, I feel we could do this for hours more. It's a lot of fun, but I also want to be sensitive to your time. So just thank you for doing this. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was fun. Always happy to come back and chat.